Welcome to Interviews with Exceptional People. I'm Dr. Sam Hazeldine, and I am really excited today to be speaking with Dr. Robin Youngson. He is an inspirational doctor. He's the author of a couple of books, um, Time to Care, How to Love Your Patients and Yourself, and his recent book, Hero to Healer, Awakening the Inner Activist. I've been following his work for, for some time. And so I'm really thrilled that we've we've now got the opportunity to to speak, and you know he, he is he, he's passionate about uh, the importance of compassion in healthcare. So welcome, welcome, Robin. It's it's really great to be talking to you today. Uh, thank you, Sam. It's a real pleasure to join you this morning. Look, uh, and I appreciate you taking the time. I know you're busy at the moment. Robin is right now in the middle of a, a series of nationwide workshops. Um, teaching compassionate leadership. So um, this is, he's an absolutely a doctor who is, uh, who, who is walking his talk. Look, Robin, um, before we get into talking about compassion and things in medicine, well, this might lead into it, um, I'd, I'd really love to understand, you know, why you chose to be a doctor. Um, you know, when did you make the decision and, 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 you know, why did you decide it was a profession for you? Yeah. Um, well, it, was, it kind of came a bit late to me. Um, as a teenager, um, I was a very shy boy, and I was a real—I was a real techy, geeky kind of character. And at school, I really liked kind of technical subjects like you know math, math and physics and chemistry. Um, and my dad always had a workshop at home, so I was always building things and inventing things. And uh, in the school I went to, I, I couldn't sit biology as a as a subject because there was a quirk in the timetable. So when I applied to university, I actually applied to do engineering, and I actually did an engineering degree at Cambridge University. But about halfway through my engineering degree, I became more aware of my father's work, and he is—he he was a doctor. Um, and I realized the kind of satisfaction that he had uh, from his work. And I also, I think many doctors have, you know, they have a childhood wound of some kind. I, my dad was in the army, and I went to boarding school. so. Age 10, I was sent to this hideous, hideous institution, separated from family and friends and loved ones, and relentlessly bullied, and, and you know, just in this dreadful place. And and so I kind of I knew suffering, and there was some part of me deep in me that really wanted to attend to suffering in the world. And I see being a doctor as a great way of doing that. So halfway through my engineering degree, I decided I would do medicine. I knew I'd have to save up a great deal of money to pay my way through. So I completed my engineering degree and took the highest paid job I could find, which is working in oil exploration, and did that for three years in West Africa and Australia and New Zealand, and then came back to England and went to med school in 1980. Wow, what a uh, what a journey to get there. How, I mean, do you, do you think that it, doing engineering uh, to start with has influenced the way you practice medicine in any way? Yeah, I think it has in, in two completely different ways. One is that it made me really natural to kind of fall into anesthetic practice as my chosen specialty, yeah. Um, because I could, you know, understand the body and the systems. Um, but also um, in my leadership roles, uh, engineering gave me a language to understand structure and process and relationships, and and I began to apply that to the health system. So right throughout my career since the mid-90s, I've been in a lot of leadership roles outside of clinical practice um, within you know, health boards and at a national and an international level. And my engineering approach has been really helpful for that. Mm, I bet it has. Robin, what's, what surprised you um, about being a doctor? I mean, obviously, you, you, know, you talked about you know, the, the learning you know, about suffering and wanting to heal suffering in boarding school. Um, and, and deciding that medicine was the way to do that. Has anything surprised you? And, and you know, I guess, what do you know now that you, you didn't know when you first started as a doctor? I mean, for sure, I started medicine in a, in a very idealistic frame of mind. And, and I think what, what shocked me profoundly was just the brutalization and the bullying and the abuse and the dehumanization that you suffer as a medical student and as a junior doctor. I mean, there were just so many deeply traumatizing experiences. Um, and, you know, my first weekend on call as a doctor, I'd been a doctor for, for less than seven days, and I was on call for medicine, and I admitted only 15 patients over 48 hours, 
and this is in the UK back in the old days, I mean, I didn't do a night shift or a day shift. I came on duty at 8 o'clock on Saturday morning and came off duty at 6 o'clock on Monday evening, and I had three hours sleep in that time. But of those 15 patients that I admitted, six of them died. And, and in those days, it was the house surgeon that went to tell the, the family that, I'm so sorry, your mum has just died of a heart attack or whatever. Wow. Um, and it was just, I was absolutely terrified um, and not well supported and completely out of my depth and, you know, just emotionally overwrought. Because I was older and I had a lot of life experience, I kind of kept calm and just did the best I could. And when I cycled home at six o'clock on Monday evening, I had a five mile ride home and I just wept uncontrollably all the way home with the trauma of that first weekend as a doctor. So that just, you know, it was so confronting that what's supposed to be a caring profession turned out to be just so brutalizing. And I think that was the most surprising thing. Mm, kind of like being back at boarding school, but next level. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I can imagine. I mean, I guess uh, it's interesting, isn't it, that, that sort of uh, – that sort of mindset of this is how we did it um, and we went through this, you know, th- th- you know, you're obviously a bit different, but, but I still see it that, you know, there are a lot of uh, senior doctors who went through a system like you did. Uh, and it's not as, you know, it's not quite like that now, but um, you know, there's, there's definitely a mindset of, well, you know, you, sh- you should have seen what we went through, just get on with it now, as, as opposed to, you know, is there, you know, questioning, is there a better way of doing it? Would you, would you agree with that? Yeah. Um, I mean, clearly the hours of work have improved greatly, but I was intern supervisor for three years, so I spent a lot of time with house surgeons. And, uh, you know, that we still have a really brutalizing system. Mm. Um, and they're working hugely long hours with often very different ways of support. And, you know, we don't have effective role models. We don't have role models of senior doctors willing to be vulnerable, willing to be human, willing to, you know, actually reach out and support junior staff. It's, we have this heroic role model um, for doctoring, which is really damaging. Mm. I mean, you, you, we talked earlier and, and you talked, you know, and I've read some of the, the work you've done about the futility of, of, of fighting the system. When you talked earlier about, about why the system is incompatible with, with sort of, you know, compassionate healthcare. Can, can you talk a little bit about that? You shared there were three values that seem to be driving um, some of this, uh, some of the problems. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I've been campaigning for 13 years to try to bring more compassion and humanity to healthcare. And this is after the experience of my teenage daughter, Chloe, who crashed her car and broke her neck and her back and spent three months in Auckland Hospital and spinal traction. And the clinical care was excellent, but what they did to her as a human being was just, you know, beyond belief, the total lack of attention to her basic human needs. So that kind of radicalized me. So I've been trying, ever since then, I've been trying to make the system more humane and compassionate. And we've, that work has taken us all around the world, about 15 countries. We've done consulting work in lots of different DHBs and health boards and different health corporations around the world. And most of that work has been futile because the system resists change. And eventually I came to realize that there's a set of values, really powerful values undermining, underlying healthcare, which, which determine how healthcare and medicine works. And the first of those values is a focus on materialistic science. So if you pick up any medical journal, it's extremely hard to find any article about caring for a human being. It's all about disease management. So we literally teach treat patients as if they're machines, as if we're just giving a drug to treat a disease process or a pathology instead of treating the whole person. And the second value in healthcare is what we call industrialization, where there's such a focus on productivity and efficiency in targets. And we have an insanity of a healthcare system that gives a GP 10-minute appointments with patients. So you never, ever get to the root causes of illness you know, or lifestyle issues. We always just treat symptoms. Mm-hmm. Um, give everyone a pill. Um, and the third value that you alluded to is this kind of heroic role model for doctors and also for managers, where we, we have to be heroes and we never can have feelings or vulnerability. Well, that means that no one ever learns. We all just hide our fears behind this facade of being, you know, this expert. And those are the most powerful values in healthcare. And also sitting behind that is a profit motive. 
Um, so we found that even though we've been invited to do consulting work in many different health organizations, and it's been received with huge enthusiasm and very positive feedback, it's never been sustainable. Always the, the winter crisis or the budget you know, overload you know, just overwhelms any attempts to, train, to change the culture of the system because there's a different set of priorities. So my belief actually is that the existing healthcare system is dying and it actually needs palliative care and we need to create completely new healthcare institutions based on sustainable values of love and compassion and caring and mutual support and actually caring for human beings rather than just treating disease. Yeah, that's um, it, so much of that rings true as I'm listening to you. I was, I was speaking to a doctor recently who is, was, is a, an ICU registrar and, and, you know, she's actually doing, you know, campaign, you know, she's a, 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 an advocate for, for doctor wellbeing, but, you know, and I've spoken to her quite a lot and this is the first time I've spoken to her and she, she just really sounded in a down space and, you know, she was talking about, you know, there's, there's all this talk about doctor wellbeing and the importance of it and things, but yet, that there is there's no actual action on the ground in terms of creating space for doctors and creating you know creating space to actually take care of yourself even to have lunch to to do anything throughout the day and and um it, it just creates this sort of the cycle downwards um you know where doctors with best intentions start to just really depersonalize um, from themselves first and from their colleagues and their patients and, and then you know, and then you know, mistakes start to happen. Doctors stop caring, um, and and it's a, it, it's you know, it's really interesting that you know the way you look at it, which is the, the system requires palliation. Um, so it's it, it's you can't it's it, you, the way you look at it by the sound of it is the system doesn't need fixing. We need a whole new system. Yeah, um, but there's some. I mean, we found really positive ways to uh, progress our work uh, in different ways. Um, I guess what was astonishing for me was in researching for my book, Time to Care, discovering the evidence of what an incredible difference it makes when you actually care for the patient rather than just, you know, have an approach to pathology. Mm -hmm. now, I'm an anesthetic specialist, and there are, there are now there are two really well-designed randomized controlled trials that, that ask the anesthetist to do their preoperative consultation in one of two different ways. And one is the way I would have done it for most of my career, which was, you know, I was nice and I was kind and I smiled, but the whole focus of my consultation was on clinical matters. And yep. I did that efficiently and well and expertly and got informed consent and any questions, no next patient. And the other way is to fulfill your important medical tasks, but at the same time to be more compassionate, empathetic, supportive, make some positive suggestions for the patients, how they can you know, help their own recovery after surgery. There's two randomized controlled trials. They showed that if you do that, that you halve the dose of morphine that a patient needs after surgery. Wow. You dramatically reduce the length of stay. You improve surgical wound healing measures objectively. You improve surgical outcomes. You reduce pain, you reduce fatigue, you reduce anxiety, you increase mobilization. I mean, it's just stunning. And there's, no, there's a whole pile of research showing that when you actually care for a person, you get dramatically better outcomes. Um, you also do far fewer interventions. You save yourself an enormous amount of time. And the costs of healthcare fall dramatically. So there's a huge trial in the United States showing, looking in very great detail, to what extent is this consultation patient-centered. And they followed 509 patients for a whole year and they analyzed, they recorded every consultation and, and analyzed it. And the patients below the median for patient-centered care, their total cost of healthcare were 50% higher than the patients who are above the median for patient-centered care. So we have never found a more uh, impressive predictive healthcare cost than the ability of the doctor to really care for the patient, for the person, as opposed to just doing disease management. So that was, completely astonishing to me. And now as an anesthetist, having done this work for a long time, you know, I don't much enjoy spending a lot of hours in an operating theater with unconscious patients. What I do love is all the bits in between when I get to meet human beings and find out their fears and put them at ease and build a bond of trust 
and do all those things that I know are going to make a tremendous difference to their experience of anesthesia surgery and how they recover afterwards. And my day just goes brilliantly. And we finish on time. And the surgeon's in a better mood by the end of the day. And, you know, and I derive this really deep joy and satisfaction from that human connection, and much less now from the kind of technical aspects of anesthesia care. Wow. So, uh, obvious question is that compassion taught in the anesthetics training program? Uh, no, uh, but. I'm really pleased to say that um, the medical professions are now really paying a lot of attention to our work. So for the, for the first whole decade, I never got an invitation to speak at a specialty medical meeting or conference. Lots of invitations from nurses and other uh, health professionals. For the last two to three years, I'm getting invitations to speak to most of the medical specialties, you know, the Royal College of Physicians, the College of Anesthetists, the College of GPs, the pediatricians and mental health. Um, and my own College of Anesthetists, the Australasian, and ANSCO, the Australasian College of, uh, New Zealand College of Anesthetists, they've twice invited me to give uh, speak at conferences and they've issued press release about my presentation. So um, earlier this year, I did five radio interviews and my story appeared in about 31 different newspapers and online journals as a result of the College of Anesthetists supporting my work and kind of promoting it. So it's not in the curriculum yet, but um, you know, the College of GPs say, please come and help us with our trainings. The College of Physicians say, please come and help us with physicians. So we're getting there. Mm. Um, and that's a radical change in the last two to three years. That's, that's so fantastic to hear. I mean, it, it, that's my feeling on things as well. Is is we the 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 tide has shifted. You know, there's been, you know, when I when I started um, working as a doctor, two thousand and three, there was really no. I I don't recall any talk about well being. Um, you know, maybe five years later, doctors started to talk about stress and well being, and it's really in the last two or three years that that you're starting to see it prioritised. You know, we you know we we run through mid world. A, a, a workshop around well-being, and royal colleges are now starting to put that as a, a day before their their annual conferences. So you're just starting to see those changes happening, and it's it's I mean it's awesome to hear that you're seeing those same things. Yeah, and so um, we we no longer uh, will do consulting work at middle level of organisations because it's it's never been sustainable. But yeah. what we do do is run compassionate leadership workshops for senior leaders. Yeah. Uh, because if you change the leadership, you change the organization. Um, and those have been extremely well received. I mean, it's, it's kind of a threatening invitation to come and uh, talk about compassionate leadership and your own self-leadership and self-care and so on as a senior leader. Yep. But people are fronting up for this. And um, we did a follow-up workshop. We, we, we took 20 leaders through one of these workshops a year ago. And earlier this year, we had a follow-up workshop with eight of those participants. And we were just astonished at the organizational changes they had led and the changes in their own personal lives. So this is real, authentic leadership in action. So, so we're keen to continue our work helping leaders to really change their organizations. And we do a lot of work with individuals just to help them reconnect to the heart of their practice and find the joy and meaning and satisfaction in their work as a doctor, a nurse, a therapist, and also how to how to attend to their own health and well-being and more resilient um, and maintain their well-being. Mm. It really, I'm with you 100% on that. It doesn't require another lecture. It doesn't require bullet points. It requires experiential kind of shifts in in, in people. And and I guess you know for people to do that, it it really it takes them courage and and to be vulnerable enough. One of the things I found in the, in the workshop, as I shared with you earlier. You know, it was it, I was really nervous about doing it because it wasn't just a clinical lecture. You know, there were there were there were there were exercises that really required people to go pretty deep. And you know, to see doctors, you know, crying, to see doctors laughing and hugging each other, uh, that you know, I, I was so thrilled to see that. You know, it it feels like you know doctors actually want to do that. They want to go there, don't they? Yeah, uh, for sure they do. And and. You know, we're really mindful. We, we have a lot of experience of running workshops right around the world. And it doesn't matter what culture it is, whether it's, you know, in the USA or New Zealand or Japan or 
you know, Saudi Arabia or the Netherlands, whatever, these are these are issues about being a human being and we find these approaches work in any culture mm. um, and language. Um, but we attend, we, we've got very skilled at designing processes that, that make people feel safe yep. and allow them to gradually open up and to do that in a kind of sacred space. And it is really remarkable. Um, there's a friend of mine in Australia that we learned a lot from. She's, she um, has for a whole lifetime been running healing retreats for people with cancer or with life crisis. And she started to run some workshops for doctors. And she told me about her first workshop and there was a, a, a breast surgeon came to the workshop and, and they did a round of introductions. And this is how the doctor introduced himself. He said, this is my life. I get up in the morning, I argue with my wife, I go to work, everyone is grumpy with me, I spend all day cutting off breasts, I go home again and I argue some more with my wife, and that's my day. And that was, his, that was all he said about himself in the introducing round. And then the next day, she found him lying on the grass, just staring at the sky, and she didn't say anything, she just lay down next to him and waited, and he just started weeping. Wow. And I just think, you know, among among doctors, we just there are so many people who are so wounded yep. and hurting so much and desperately in need of just a, a different way of being. And it's, you know, it's so gratifying for us to help us, for us to help people just to reconnect to their ideals, to their, to their, their compassionate caring, to what the kind of doctor they want us to be and to find the joy and meaning in their work again, and to find you know, how much resilience and well-being comes out of you know, compassionate caring. Um, so that's, that's, I mean, I, you know, we, we get letters from people saying, you, know, you saved my career, I was gonna quit medicine, and I read your book, and now I'm you know, happy and flourishing in practice. I mean, it's really gratifying. Yeah, I mean, that, you know, I guess any doctor listening, um, I mean, I, I, I felt, Felt what you, you know, I felt you then, uh, in terms of you know sharing that story about the, the, that that surgeon, um, and, and and I guess that, that that's it. The rigors, the the pain, the 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 challenges of being a doctor, um, like that surgeon, you just kind of I guess doctors protect that, those wounds by just putting up a shell of just not caring, don't they? But yeah. but that what that first step to uh, and that, that's probably it. The, the first step to that healing is actually to feel that. To feel that pain, feel that wound, to feel how much that can hurt, and uh, and I guess you know, any doctor who's listening, if if that's what you're feeling like, you you're in the majority. You're not in the minority. Like like we don't as doctors, we you know, we are. You know, it depends where you look at the research, but over fifty percent are in burnout. You know, um, you know, eighty seven percent are stressed beyond levels that are productive. But you don't see that in your colleagues. We have a, a a professional facade that we are really good at putting on, and I think that's that that's a challenge for doctors, junior doctors particularly, because they see their colleagues. And it's like the Facebook type phenomenon. Everyone looks like they've got a happy life. Um, you see your colleagues, and they appear to be handling it, um, but actually inside, the, people are hurting. And uh, and I guess if, if 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 you're feeling like that as a doctor, you, you're just not alone, are you? No, absolutely not. It's uh, it's it's the it's the norm rather than the exception. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. But um, but it's interesting. You talk to people outside of medicine, and and you tell them over fifty percent are in burnout. Um, and doc people are just like, what? You know, you never see a doctor who looks like they're struggling because we because we don't we don't show it. We yeah. we're good at keeping it keeping it deep deep down. Um, I guess yeah, right. that, that that stage in that healing is to to feel it. And then, and then I guess that opens up the opportunity to then heal, doesn't it? Yeah, we're we're really good at being heroes. One of the things that we do at Hearts and Healthcare is that, you know, as doctors, we always focus on the pathology. That's just the way we think. We're always looking for problems, risk, pathology. Yep. Um, and the same is true of those who look at doctors' health and well-being, because you know, what instrument do we use to measure health and well-being? The Maslach burnout inventory. Yeah. You know, yet again, we're just focusing on the pathology. So at Hearts and Healthcare, um, we began to be curious about doctors that were joyous and flourishing and happy in a system where everyone else was burning out. And so we began to research informally 
you know, how come, how come you're happy? How come you get so much satisfaction from your work? So we invented a questionnaire that was called the Compassionate Happiness Inventory, Chi. It's got some positive energy around it. <laughs> and it's a series of questions. And, and it was about, you know, meaning and joy and work. And, we, and it's an anonymous questionnaire, but we said to anyone, if you score more than 70 out of 100, you're exceptional. Please give us your email address because we want to interview you. And we interviewed a whole pile of uh, health professionals in different countries and found out, you know, what are the things that they do to really be joyous and, and flourishing and happy in work. And uh, this really, what we found really accords with a lot of the findings um, from positive psychology. Um, and the doctors that really flourish, first of all, they're really kind to themselves. So they're really compassionate towards themselves. Most doctors are really you know, highly self-critical. And the ones that are happy and, and flourishing learn to be really kind to themselves. They don't judge themselves. Mm -hmm. And when we're kind to ourselves, when we don't judge ourselves, we tend to be less judgmental and kinder and more understanding to others. Mm. They have some very distinct practices. Um, they really, they take care of their attitude because we can, it's so easy to get trapped into spending each day of thinking how miserable you are, what a crap system you work in, how the patients are ungrateful, how you hate your manager, you know, how short-staffed you are. Um, but the doctors who flourish, they put aside those thoughts and they very durably focus on just the extraordinary privilege of the work they do, the, the joyous um, experience of, you know, human connection and being with patients in really intimate events, and they really focus on that. Mm. They have really small daily practices. They don't perform random acts of kindnesses, kindness they do very deliberate mindful acts of kindness so they come to work each day in fact if you did nothing else at all if you just did this one practice this could save a whole pile of careers if you just come to work each day with a deliberate intention to do a small act of kindness you know you might see a patient wandering in the corridor looking a bit lost and you can walk past eyes there and no eye contact or you can stop and say hi my name's robin you're looking a bit lost you know, can I help you? And, oh, I'm trying to find Ward 14. Well, can I take you to Ward 14? You know, I've got the time. And just take by the arm and say, well, what brings you to the hospital today and engage them as a human being? That might take you two or three minutes. You will have a warm glow for the rest of the day. If you do small acts of kindness for one week, then the research shows that three months later, your mental health score will just be, you know, statistically and clinically much better, less likely to be depressed and enjoying life more. So that's what positive psychology is teaching us, is that really small acts of kindness, appreciation, gratitude, really do a tremendous amount for your well-being. And as you learn to connect to patients as human beings again, and start to take pleasure in that human connection, the feedback you get is so rewarding, the warm glow you get in your heart. You, you learn to begin to um, enjoy and be appreciative of a whole pile of things in your work as a doctor outside of your you know clinical expertise and that's really where the joy lies and it's it's quite transformative and there's really really good research evidence sitting behind it all and this is what we found when we interviewed the doctors that were joyous and flourishing in their work fantastic fantastic it's uh robin you and i need to get together and actually compare our research because You've done something very similar to what I did, which is, I, you know, I said if 87% are overstressed, then 13% aren't. Let's find the 13% and focus on them and what are they doing and and did the same thing. And yeah. a lot of doctors and, and there's there's a lot of, I mean, no, nothing, um, certainly there's nothing contradictory. You know, what one of, one of the, you know, managing your attitude, managing your mindset. Um, you know, one of the things I encourage doctors to do is around focusing on that purpose about why we're doctors in the first place. And one of those, one of the ways to do that, it's again, it's, 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 it's sort of applying your focus as I encourage them before they go into the hospital to say, how can I serve greatly today? Not just how can I serve, but how can I serve greatly? And every time you, you your interaction with any yeah. person, how can I serve that person greatly? I, I guess it's a similar sort of approach to how can I be kind to them? You know, how can I, not just how can I serve this person? Because you can very easily go, yeah, I'm being a doctor, fine, great, I'm going to fix them. But how can I do it greatly? Like, that's where you go that extra mile. That's where you you, you, you don't just sort of bowl on in and, and, and do the clinical stuff. You ask those extra questions. So um, that's, I mean, I, I, 
that, that we'll take we'll take this to another conversation. But we absolutely need to get together and and uh, and share that research because it's it, it's so interesting. And and I guess you know as you've done there, you know you sort of. You, um, the research gives you sort of places to dig, and then you can you know you look for evidence to see if if, if there's a, you know an evidence base as to why that why that works. Um, Robin, you've mentioned a couple of things. Are there are there any other things that you you know I guess simple things that doctors can do to increase their levels of compassion? I begin. I imagine anyone listening at this point um, would 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 wouldn't be arguing the fact that it's important not just for their patients but also for themselves. Is there, are there any sort of practical things doctors can do to increase their levels of compassion? I'd like to tell a story about that. Um, because there was, you know, there was one day that changed my life. And I remember so vividly, and it was about 15 years ago. And at that time, I was working as an anesthetic specialist at Waitakere Hospital in West Auckland. And the maternity unit, uh, which was a busy maternity unit, but it didn't have any registrars or house surgeons. It's kind of an accident of geography and history. So I was on duty for 24 hours at a time every Tuesday with the same obstetrician who was also doing a 24-hour duty. And on this particular day, I'd had a really busy day. I'd worked for about 15 hours flat out. It was just one of those kind of really fraught days. And I got home at 11 o'clock at night and my wife Meredith cooked me a nice dinner. It was still in the oven. It was a bit kind of dried out, but I enjoyed that. And I got to bed at midnight. And at 1 a.m. I was called out to go and do an epidural for pain relief and labor. And that took me an hour, so I got back to bed at 2. I fell asleep, you know, really exhausted, starting to feel sleep deprived. At half past 2, 30 minutes later, I was called out again. Urgent fetal distress, urgent seizure, rushed into the hospital, took care of the patient, the mother and the baby, they were okay. Got home at half past 4, really exhausted, had almost no sleep at all. I fell into a deep sleep, and 10 minutes later, my phone rang and I was beating the life out of the alarm clock and I couldn't understand why it wouldn't stop ringing. And Meredith was saying, Robin, for God's sake, answer the phone because I'm in that kind of confusional state. Yeah. And there was a midwife asking me to come and do an epidural and I was really pissed off. I was really wrathful. I had the 10 minute drive in the hospital and I thought she knew I was in the hospital and how could she let me go home and be asleep for 10 minutes and then wake me up and this was just cruel and you know unusual and and there's sometimes a lot of friction between doctors and midwives. We have very different worldviews. So I drove into the hospital, really uncharacteristic for me. I was just really irreparable and, and angry and frustrated and exhausted and feeling sorry for myself. And halfway to the hospital, I suddenly felt deeply ashamed. I just had shame wash over me because at that moment I remembered why I became a doctor. I remembered that I became a doctor because I wanted to attend to suffering. I wanted to help people. And that if this was if this was my wife or my daughter that needed an epidural for pain relief, I wouldn't hesitate to get out at, you know, five o'clock in the morning to go and help them. So this was someone else's wife. And I began to think about the extraordinary privilege and intimacy of that invitation to attend to a mother in one of one of life's most intimate events. To see her really vulnerable, sometimes completely stark naked and severe pain, frightened, you know, exhausted. And to know what I could do would just be transformative. Not just my technical skills in doing an epidural, but the quality of spirit and care that I brought into a room. So that moment I decided I would try a thought experiment for the next three months or so. And any time I noticed I was having grumpy thoughts or feeling sorry for myself thoughts, I would deliberately try and let go of those and just focus on the extraordinary privilege of the work that we're called to do. So I tried that as an experiment for three months and it was really amazing because in that three months, all of the difficult midwives had a personality transplant. And now when I'm called to a delivery room, I would be welcomed in like a hero. And I get the, I get the sense that my praises have been sung to the, to the mother. And the mother would already, the epidural trolley would already be in the room and the mother would be in the position for the epidural. I get it done in three minutes flat. But I noticed that half the pain relief occurred before I even put a needle in the patient. Mm. Just by bringing that spirit of compassion and kindness and softness and gentleness into the room. And I noticed that I started getting called out far less often in the night. I noticed that the number of seizures we were doing started to fall. So, you know, my whole world changed. And I thought, God, that's amazing because the only 
person who changed was was me. And yet the whole world changed. And we have this idea of the world out there as being this kind of concrete thing that exists out there, but it's not. We invent and create our whole world. And when we choose a different attitude, it just makes us incredibly powerful and we can change the whole world around us. And that was probably the most important life lesson I've had, uh, not just in medicine, you know, but in my life in general. And that's, that's the first step is really is choosing an attitude. And then the, the, the second journey is self-care. Really start to nourish and take care of yourself, learn something about self-compassion. And then just choose a little habit like a daily act of kindness. And then you'll be you'll be way on the path because it becomes you know it's it becomes so rewarding your interaction with patients changes so rapidly you find so much more joy and satisfaction at work that you're encouraged so deeply to to go deeper and, you know maybe i could learn some mindfulness meditation maybe i could do this maybe i could start exercising maybe i could drop some work hours and spend more time with family you know it becomes an irreversible path into deepening practice and joy and satisfaction and greater well-being and it's, it's completely irreversible once you start on that path there's no going back <laughs> fantastic fantastic i mean I, I read i read a blog post from you about the futility of fighting the system but the importance of handling yourself and and i guess we've talked about you know the, those those three values driving the system but you know what we're talking about now, and 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 what I I, I believe a hundred percent as well as, you know, within a system there are still doctors who are thriving. That you can there are still doctors who are enjoying their medicine. There are still doctors who are having a positive impact. Um, and, and I guess this is this is that how do you this is that handling yourself. Um, to, to I guess to to use your inner world to create an outer world that you want to be part of. Yeah, and that was really the key to being effective in our leadership because I've campaigned for 13 years and for the first decade or so, we, we helped a lot of individuals, but we made brutal change to the system. And that last year I did a TEDx talk at Tauranga, um, which is about this, because I began my work very angry, um, you know, and I became an evangelist and a crusader. And all I did was piss people off. And, you know, the more you try to persuade people, the more resistance you create. So we had to adopt and learn a much softer set of leadership skills. So we had to adopt non-judgment. And, you know, I used to get really angry about uncaring, you know, chief executives of health boards and doctors and so on. And now I begin to look for the suffering that sits behind that and to be less judgmental um, and to find ways of supporting them in their work. Instead of trying to persuade people, you know, I had all the research and science, but you never change people with, you know, science and evidence. Hmm. I found out that the most powerful way that I could influence people was actually for myself to be vulnerable. If I make myself vulnerable or shed a tear or, you know, share a personal story, it makes it safe for other people to open up a bit and to be vulnerable. Then they're in a space that they can learn. Hmm. Um, instead of, you know, we kind of became experts on teaching compassion, my wife and I, and that really pissed people off as well. Because, you know, I suppose you're just here to teach us what we've already been doing for the last 30 years. Mm -hmm. So we say up front, you know, we're not here to teach you how to be compassionate. But you're working in a really challenging system. And here are some things you can do to, to um, you know, boost the compassionate care for patients, even in a, little, in a really difficult work environment, and to take care of yourself. But instead of teaching stuff, we use a appreciative inquiry and we draw out the wisdom in the room. Because lessons that are shared by peers in a really deep listening space, that's far more powerful learning than anything you can teach. Mm. And then we moved out of transactional relationships because, um, you know, we, we're running this as a business and we're not a charity um, and we're running all sorts of workshops on charging fees to be a speaker and so on. Um, but we felt more and more uncomfortable about that because we, we kind of believe that our work, some, the way we do our work has a role model of values we're trying to promote. And compassion and generosity do not live in a world of business transactions. So now we, we never charge a fee. If I'm invited to speak at an international conference, I say, well, I don't have a fee. If I agree to come, we'll do our very best to serve your organization or your event. And you can decide afterwards if you would like to give our, make a donation in support of our work. And my new book is the same. It's, I, I sell it on a website, but the default price is zero. And you can get the book for nothing. 
and or you can choose the price if you like. And lots of people take it for free as an ebook. One person paid a hundred dollars for an ebook, which is free because he really believes in our work. So, in actual fact, we're getting more money from donations than we ever were from professional fees, which is you know really humbling. And some organisations can afford to be very generous and allows us to do a lot of work for free for organisations that don't have any money. So um, yeah, we're really trying to do the work in a way that supports the values we're trying to promote. And these are far more powerful ways to lead change in the world than trying to you know, be the heroic leader and persuade people and, and battle on, battle against the system. So we've, we've actually given up trying to change the system, but we, we help leaders do their work in a different way and we help individuals reconnect to the heart of their practice. Mm. And those two things are now quite powerfully creating change all around the world. Wow, that's powerful. I, I I I absolutely believe that you know you can't influence someone who you're judging, and and that's you know, absolutely yeah. what you're saying there. You know, is if you're judging, you're pushing, and as soon as someone pushes you, what do you do? You push back, and and so yeah. you know that that approach of judgmental. Here's what you need to do. Um, just causes people to actually reaffirm what they what they previously what they believe even more. So. To, to to take that sort of step aside, it's kind of like Aikido, you know, you kind of go with it um, and, and to, you know, to try and look beyond what you wanted to judge and try and, you know, see the hurt, see the pain, see the, the stress, the challenges beyond that. I mean, that's something any of us can apply in, in our daily interactions, isn't it? Yeah, and I guess, you know, we're kind of slow learners. It took us a whole decade to even begin to, you know, realise that, um, being an evangelist wasn't really very helpful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Get on your soapbox, and uh, people just walk on past, don't they? <laughs> yeah. Robin, with with everything you're doing in in the in the compassion space, um, you know, working for others, um, does does it come at a cost to yourself and your family? You've you've spoken about your wife Mary, and, and you've got three daughters. Or how have you managed to prioritise um, your family and, and yourself whilst doing this important work? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I mean, I, I think I think I mean, my wife and I have probably never had a more joyous, more balanced, more healthy, you know, life than we do now. Um, and and I'm I'm doing three days a week of clinical practice as well. Yeah, um, I do locum work in, in various small hospitals at the moment. I'm doing regular work in one one hospital not so far from home, which is great. Um, we we just we've really learned to take care of ourselves. We've really learned to um, balance our life. Um, we we have a rule now. I mean, for many years we followed our passion, and and passion that's a word that has a root in pain and suffering. So you you know you can you can have life experiences that lead you to be really passionate about trying to change the world, but often that's a painful process. You can burn out. You can you know you're just kind of fighting the world the whole time. And we have a rule now because we have so many invitations to go and speak or do work with different groups, and we you know we can't accept half of those. And and the rule now is not you know not what what would be valuable or you know what's our passion. But we actually choose the work that that we love that energizes us mm. um, and um, and that's actually a really clever and good strategy for helping to change the world because we just go to the places where there's a really good values fit where there's positive energy where people we never promote our work people reach out to us mm. and when there's a really when there's a really good feeling in the heart about working with this group that's where we go and and the, the work is not work, it's energizing. So we're doing a, a one-day workshop tomorrow. We, we did that in Auckland a couple of weeks ago. Everyone at the end of the day ended up on a high. We were just on a high. We were just thrilled. We were energized. We were, you know, thriving in that. That didn't feel like work. That was a privilege. So, um, but, but I mean, I've been married to Meredith. We were married in 1980, so we're coming up to our 37th wedding anniversary. Um, you know, we're so fortunate. We're, we're Deeply and happily married. Um, Meredith works alongside me in the work that we do. She's a co-facilitator. She's a presenter in her own right. Um, she is. We come from very different perspectives. Um, she's been coaching me all my life, 
knocking off the rough court, you know, the sharp edges and the rough corners. And every time I speak, she sits quietly in the audience, you know, sensing the reaction of the audience and because it's in different cultures, different places, and uh, giving me feedback about how I could be more effective or what I might add or wow. you know, questions that people are asking themselves. So, you know, she's been fine-tuning, you know, our work. And she comes from a community development perspective as opposed to a health system perspective. So, wow. Um, you know, it's it's really, and we've invested very deeply in our own health and well-being in many, many different ways. I mean, we've done a lot of, um, you know, programs to look at our own health and well-being, our attitudes, um, to learn mindfulness, to look after physical health and so on. So, um, no, we've never been more healthy and more relaxed um, and, you know, and a better balance in life, um, even though we're achieving a great deal. Mm. Mm, fantastic. I mean, it's really interesting. I, I mean, it's a real privilege for me to get to interview exceptional doctors like yourself, and 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 that's one of the things that they, you know, they they they're achieving things on, on a on, on a wide scale, whether you know, on, on a deep scale, whether it's within you know a specific hospital department, whether it's you know national, global. But one of the things that I found absolutely is consistent across these exceptional doctors who are enjoying themselves as well is that they do invest in themselves and their own health and well-being they don't they don't leave that they don't, they don't kind of buy into the old paradigm of i'll sacrifice everything for my for my career for my patients it, it, you know they 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 say look i'll take care of myself for my you know for you know so that i can you know be as influential so i can have an impact so i can provide care of the highest standard um there's it, it's really really interesting how uh and you know, you know, doctors uh, often, you know, ironically think that sacrifice is the way to to achievement. As whereas, you know, sustainable, enjoyable achievement, um, it's it's you, we've got to remember that 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 looking after ourselves is is so so important. I think we also have an ethical duty to do that because you know, if you're a doctor, how can you possibly expect any of your patients to achieve? You know, health and well-being. If you're not role modeling that yourself, so I'm I'm 61 years old. I don't take any medications. I've never spent a night in hospital as a patient. <laughs> that is, you know, I exercise regularly. I go running. I get to you know do long distance, you know, cycling. I've got now got an electric mountain bike that allows me to go in rugged terrain up and down, you know, big hills without getting exhausted. Yeah. So I'm still getting great exercise. Yep. Um, and, um, you know, we've learned that actually to be completely healthy and strong and robust and fit is just, that's what normal, that's the normal state of being for a human being. Anything else is, you know, like a pathology. And yet how many patients of 60 years old do you meet in the hospital who are not taking antihypertensives, you know, lipid drug, you know, diabetic drugs, you know, anxiety medications, you name it. It's really rare to meet a 60 year old He's completely fit, healthy, doesn't take medications, looks well for himself. Mm. So I really think we have some weird goals. We don't actually have a health system. We have a sickness system. You know, we are promoting and incentivizing medicated sickness yep. as opposed to health and well-being. Yep. You know, we give GPs incentives. We get, we get patients on pills. It's crazy. We should be giving incentives to keep patients off pills. Yeah. But we don't have a health system that supports health and well-being. So I think we actually have an ethical duty as doctors to attend to our own health and well-being first. I, I agree. I mean, I agree, obviously, 100%. And, and, and I think on two, two levels. One is, you know, the, uh, the, that being that role model uh, and, and actually role modeling the behavior we want to see. The other is the evidence is absolutely clear that if you're not taking care of yourself, if you're in stress, you're in burnout, then that leads to depersonalization and depersonalization leads to increases in major medical errors. So purely on the clinical front, we've got an obligation as well because the way we're being and behaving as doctors on the whole is causing us to harm our patients and even kill them. Yeah. That's just and also, if uh, there's research uh, from Israel looked at 8,000 employees um, shows that if you if you're above the threshold in the burnout score, and this is working age people, not not retirees, yep. uh, you have a 40% increased risk of a stroke or heart attack in the next five years. That's a bigger risk factor than smoking. Mm. 
Mm. Mm. I mean, it's, yeah. it's it's incredible, isn't it? And I, and I guess to anyone listening as well around this the, this burnout space, um, and I'll just share a little quick story with me. I mean, I've I've been doing work in the space now for about five years, and 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 early mm. on, you know, I was I mean, I I get quite fanatical about things. Um, I you know, I, I I throw myself into my work. I throw myself into whatever it is. I'm, I I guess you know, as you, you mentioned, passion earlier. And and I was doing all this work in the burnout space and 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 interviewing doctors who were who were thriving and doing all this stuff. And I was just, you know, I was getting tighter and and kind of just not enjoying my work as much. And and, and I just thought I was tired. Um, and then I did one of those, did a burnout assessment, and I was like, oh crap. Um, I, I I've actually put my I've burnt out myself. You know, I was I was right at the top of the scale. And and so you know, even yeah. though you can be you know quote unquote expert in the space, um, it's it's hard to identify it in yourself. It actually can be you know, there's this personally, you know, I was em- I was embarrassed that I was I'd been doing all this work in the space, and <laughs> I've been identifying all these patterns in doctors who are thriving and like yep 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 great great great, yeah. yep do those in myself. Reality was I may not be doing them at the moment, um, but. But I was, I was I, I'd, I'd burnt myself out doing work on burnout, and uh, and that was a real that for me that was a massive eye opener, and and it was also really valuable as well because I then realised you know the change level required and actually how difficult it was to actually recover. Um, it wasn't just a quick fix; it was just a few nights good sleep. Um, and yeah. uh, you know, yeah, you know, I just wanted to say anyway, any doctor who's listening, you know. It's, it's it can be quite insidious. It's 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 a hidden sort of thing that just creeps up on you sometimes. Uh, yeah, I, I'm just extraordinarily fortunate, you know. In my marriage, marriage, my husband, my my wife is just, you know, she always attends to the the well being of the whole family, and she, you know, she'll always call me out. Yeah. Or she 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 she. she uh, carefully hides funds away in a hidden bank account I don't know about. And then she says, okay, Robin, we're booking two weeks holiday <laughs> and I've got the money for it. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. She's... And, uh, I mean, and we're both, we're, we're both, um, you know, investing in learning kind of different kinds of healing methodologies. Yeah. Um, both to help other people, but also to help each other and help ourselves. Yeah. Um, yeah. So really stepping much more into a healing space. Yeah, Meredith sounds great. She sounds like she's like your thermostat. You know, she sits her she she's sort of your thermostat when you when you're speaking. She she keeps things uh keep, keeps you you know on the level in, in your in your own life too. Good uh good yeah, yeah. good yeah. partnership. Robin, if you could go back in time and speak to your eighteen year old self, or you know, speaking to any junior doctor or medical student or just anyone who's listening, what would you say are the three most important things that 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 to, to help and live an exceptional life, whatever exceptional means yeah. to, to the individual? That's, that's, that's a great question. And indeed, that's, that's our most favorite work is, is um, working with groups of young health professionals or students um, because they're just, you know, they have hearts wide open mm. and they're full of their ideals. So the, the first thing is, you know, deeply remember the ideals that brought you into medicine. Yeah, um, because it's almost always the calling of compassion. Yeah, and, and when you know the the real secret to health and well-being is having deeply knowing your identity and your purpose and aligning your life with that. Mm. Um, so the second thing is to is to take actions to reconnect to the heart of your practice. So you, we we did a wonderful workshop with sixty five young doctors in Germany, and it was kind of difficult because it was an English and German um, bilingual. Um, but what we realized is that all those young doctors in the first three years of practice, they felt really kind of incompetent. They, they didn't have a lot of um, confidence in their technical knowledge and skills. Um, and, you know, we teach by humiliation anyway. So that's, you know, we're always undermining people's confidence. But when they learned how powerfully that compassionate caring makes an impact on patient outcomes, which is about as big as the effect size of a lot of the medications we use. Mm. They realize that you know every young doctor has a fully formed, fully formed heart, and they can be deeply um, uh, expert and and um, 
um, confident and caring as a human being, even if their technical skills and knowledge, you know, they're still learning. And it really, that, that really created an amazing change in the room with a collective understanding of it. So that's the second thing, connect to the heart of your practice. And the third thing is to believe in abundance. You know, we have a modern society that creates scarcity. Um, we have an economic system where nothing can have a price unless you make it scarce first, because if it's freely available, it's worthless. We have an economic system that concentrates wealth and creates a great deal of inequality. So we have so much poverty. We have a healthcare system that seems to be overwhelmed by this tremendous burden of disease. And there's just not enough doctors, nurses, beds, hospitals, whatever. So we live in this whole world of scarcity. But I've begun to perceive of my patients in a very different way because I've come to understand and believe that that every human being has this incredible capacity for health, healing, and well-being. And if we relate to our patients in a different way, if we treat them as people, if we believe in our patients, then they kind of step up and they find ways to manage their own you know, health challenges. And, and actually patients become the most abundant resource that we have as opposed to a burden you know, of care. Um, so that's, so, yeah, just start thinking about abundance and generosity and um, believing in the capacity of your patients. And we, we, as we've traveled the world, we've heard so many stories of patients that are written off with terminal cancer and 10 years later, they're still alive and well. And there's no sign of cancer because they just deeply believed in a capacity to heal themselves. And it's just, you know, there's three ways you can relate to a patient. You can you can fix patients, or you can help patients, or you can serve patients. And and I was very good at fixing and helping with my engineering background. But in both those ways of relating, if you're fixing a patient, you're kind of making the judgment they're broken. And if you're helping a patient, you're kind of making the judgment that they're helpless. But when you serve patients, what you do is you bring all of your knowledge and your skill and your power and your influence in service to the life of the patient. So the patient sets the agenda. And that is a joyful way of practicing. The patients grow in front of you. They just walk out of a consulting room standing taller. Um, your work is so much more fun. You get much better clinical outcomes. You do far fewer interventions. Um, so yeah, that belief in abundance um, is really important. Yeah, so remembering the ideals that brought you into medicine connect to the heart of your practice and believe in abundance. Those are the three things. Wow, brilliant, powerful, powerful. Robin, how do you want to be remembered? Yeah, I, I had to think about that question for a while. Um, I think I'd, I'd like to be remembered as someone who inspired generosity in the world. And it's coming back to that, that idea about abundance. Um, you know, nature is so abundant. The, the reality of being a human being is, is to be abundant. You know, love is abundant. Kindness and compassion and love are highly contagious and they spread through communities and organizations. Um, and, you know, our work now is focusing more and more on abundance and generosity as a way of being. Generosity not as a virtue, but as a belief in abundance. And, and I think, you know, if, if, if I could be remembered for anything, it would be someone who inspired greater generosity and abundance in the world. Yeah, that would do me. <laughs> well, Robin, I think you're, you, sounds to me like that's exactly what you're doing. And, 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 you know, speaking with you today, you've certainly uh, inspired, inspired generosity in me and, uh, and, and, and influenced, um, I guess, how I look at um, well-being um, in, a, in a profound way. Look, Robin, thank you so so much for for taking this time. I mean, I, I know it's been it's been powerful for me. I'm sure it's been powerful for anyone who's listening. You know, I think you know to to me, you know, that it really, you know, the the way the, the way you talk about the the work you're doing in the in, in compassion, um, you know, it, it the impact it's having is 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 sounds really profound. I mean, it, the the evidence is there, obviously, that it's good for our patients. But it's also obviously great for the doctors and great for ourselves. So, you know, thank you for the work you're doing, and thank you for for taking the time today. Um, to anyone's listening, uh, you know, we'll we'll make sure that with this we share we share a few links. Um, we you know we'll share some links in terms of how you can get some of Robin's get Robin's books. Um, he's got some really really interesting um, blogs. 
blog posts and and we'll share a link to his TEDx talk because um, I'm sure like 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 me you're inspired to uh, to want to know more. Um, so look, Robin, once again, thank you so much for uh, for your time today. I know you're you, you're busy and you fitted us into your uh, your 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 workshop tour. So I pr- appreciate you and appreciate appreciate this conversation. It's just been my pleasure, Sam, and thanks. Thank you for all the inspiring work that you do. I mean, you're, you know, that we're we're, we're hopeful about the future of the world because we see young leaders like yourself, a new generation coming through, uh, with a different way of seeing the world, and you know, really being courageous and inspiring that. So, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks, Robin.